Greetings, everyone, and welcome once again to Modern Gnostic. This is part two in the Esoteric Patriotism Project, uh, where we continue reading from Stefan Heller's excellent book, Freedom, Alchemy for a Voluntary Society. So kick back, get something good to drink, something warm if it's cold where you are, and enjoy this exploration of this powerful book. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Modern Gnostic. This is uh, January 22nd, 2021, and our second installment in our series, our first series on esoteric patriotism. If you listened to the last episode, you know we're reading uh, the wonderful book by Stefan Heller, Freedom, Alchemy for a Voluntary Society. Uh, if you didn't hear that first episode, you might want to go back and listen to it before you listen to this one. Um, if not, if you just want to dive in, feel free to just dive in. Uh, last episode, we kind of laid out what we're doing with the project, and we got through the preface of the book. And today, I just want to pick up where we left off and dive in with the introduction. Um, and as a short introduction <clears throat> to the Esoteric Patriotism Project, uh, what we're doing here basically is working to <clears throat> rediscover and get a solid understanding of the esoteric roots of not just Western culture, but specifically the experiment that was the American Republic. Um, taking from Bishop Heller's book, he lays out the case that the founding ideals were rooted in uh, kind of non-conventional spirituality, Gnosticism, Hermeticism, uh, the ideological currents running through Masonry, Rosicrucianism, um, and, and just this kind of mix uh, that is the Western esoteric tradition. And it is my belief and my, um, my idea that what we desperately need in these uncertain times is to re-engage and reignite in ourselves the spirit of the founding fathers. And that spirit was uh, was a flame of esoteric thought and esoteric awakening. And as we go through the book and through this program of esoteric patriotism, we'll, we'll dive into this further. Uh, but our starting point is gonna be studying Stefan Heller's book together. So um, like I recommended in the first episode, if you, if you haven't gotten a copy of this book, uh, go out to your favorite bookstore or get online, check a Libris uh, used books online and get you a copy of this wonderful book, Freedom, Alchemy for a Voluntary Society by Stefan Heller. Um, and I'm going to get a sip of my wonderful Egyptian licorice tea. <clears throat> and we'll begin, we'll jump right in with the introduction. The Gnosis of Freedom. The late 1980s and early 1990s have been characterized by a well-nigh miraculous series of events which have freed the peoples of what were once the Soviet Union and its satellite countries from prolonged oppression by the system under which they were forced to live for many decades. The motivating force for these developments was everywhere identical, the desire for freedom. As it has so often in the history of our troubled planet, Freedom has become a most vital consideration, an overwhelmingly powerful factor in the affairs of the world. It was not economics, 
or raising the standard of living, or for that matter, concern for a clean environment, or any of the numerous other issues which have been publicized in recent years that made this large segment of humanity stare down the tanks and guns of their oppressors. Their objective was freedom, pure and simple. And so Stefan Heller published this book in 1992, and for younger viewers, for people who were um, maybe not born then or, or born very shortly before then. Um, I was born in 1972, and I remember very vividly what he was talking about, the fall of the Soviet Union, um, the fall of the East German, the, the Berlin Wall that separated West and East Berlin, and the fracturing of the previous uh, Soviet social republics into independent um, countries. And this was a really powerful symbol uh, since World War II, you know, the world had been embroiled in this Cold War between Western powers and the Soviet powers. And the falling of this was a, was a blossoming of freedom. And you could just see, I remember at the time, you could see on the news people dancing in the streets, people toppling statues of Lenin and Stalin, um, people going through the files of the, of the former secret police, people being freed from prisons. Um, and the falling of these hated regimes. And it was, it's something that I feel like we've gotten far away from. And it's one of the reasons that I think people can advocate so strongly these days for, for failed political philosophies like socialism, because we're, we're years and years away from seeing the living example of these Soviet systems. I mean, we still have China, we still have Cuba, we still have Venezuela, uh, but, but there was something monumental about the so about Soviet Russia and the Soviet Union in general. So that's just to kind of lay um, the the background for the time period uh, that Bishop Heller's writing and for what he's talking about. I also think it's important um, this point he makes that it was not economics or raising the standard of living or concern for the environment or any uh, any other set of causes that led to this. It was a yearning for freedom, and you know, being born into free societies, perhaps we, we don't understand that so much. Um, as anyone who's been listening to the podcast for a while knows about me, I spent many years in prison in Texas. And one of the things I can tell you is that when your freedom is taken away from you, from the, when the freedom to choose where you want to go, when you want to go, who you want to associate with, what you want to read, what you want to watch, what you're allowed to write, what you're allowed to say, when those things are taken away from you, it doesn't matter what economic system you're living under. Uh, when I was in prison, I started out in maximum security prisons. And then by the end of my stay, I was in trustee camps, which is kind of like going from living in the bottom rungs of society to living in the top rungs of society. And I don't mind telling you that in the trustee camps that I was in, life was pretty good. You know, the food was good. The living conditions were good. Um, I, my family would send me money. I had money in my, in my prison bank account, but none of that mattered. I would have traded all of that in an instant for freedom. Uh, there's an old saying that a gilded bird cage is still a cage. And that's what uh, I believe Stefan Heller is talking about here. So even when we hear people um, put forward these collectivist ideas and talk about how great it will be, you know, how it'll take care of the needs of the people and everyone will have, uh, you know, their needs met and universal this and universal that. And that's all well and good. But if freedom is not there, if freedom is not there, none of that will matter to you. 
And I think that's what he's saying here. It wasn't a concern for better living conditions. Of course, there was a concern for better living conditions. Socialism uh, does not provide good economic conditions for people. Uh, it's just a fact. And, and of course, people didn't want to wait in bread lines. People wanted to have consumer goods. And one of the things that led to the fall of the Soviet Union was this, um, this interesting thing of like Western culture creeping in and people coming into the Soviet unions and selling Jordache jeans and, and things like that products, consumer products that people didn't have access to Hollywood movies, music, all of this kind of stuff made people realize what they were missing in that, in that element. And so economics is a concern. I don't think that Bishop Heller is saying it's not a concern, but the fundamental concern is freedom. And that's because who and what we really are are free beings. We have a freedom, a free will, a freedom of choice given to us from God. So I think that's what he's talking about. So we continue. What then is freedom? And why do people time and again risk all for this elusive gift of the gods? What must we do to achieve it? And once achieved, what may we do to secure its presence for us? Many have fought for liberty, equality, and fraternity over the last few hundred years, only to be victimized after their victory by new and fearful tyrannies. What then, we must ask, goes wrong so often with humanity's quests for freedom? Why is freedom glimpsed so often only in passing, a reality intimated but often not achieved in any lasting sense? If we are to answer these questions meaningfully, we must first liberate the idea of freedom from the aura of philosophical abstraction, which so frequently surrounds it. Clearly, freedom does not exist as a sort of platonic idea by and of itself, but must be understood as manifesting at the existential level in people's lives. C.S. Lewis said that one never experiences a toothache in the abstract, nor eats an abstract meal. Rather, one experiences a specific pain and eats a particular meal. In the same manner, one might say that freedom is the ability of specific persons to be free from specific restrictions inhibiting their growth. Let me read that again. In the same manner, one might say that freedom is the ability of specific persons to be free from specific restrictions inhibiting their growth happiness, and well-being. Freedom is not a tenuous and elusive set of purely abstract ideas and ideals. When the philosophers of the Enlightenment spoke of le droit de homme, the rights of man, they meant exactly this, the rights of particular human beings to enjoy concrete personal freedoms. You guys have to excuse me for a second. The sun's going down. It's getting dark in here, and I need to turn on an extra light. Be right back. Once we come to admit that the concept of freedom in general is inextricably bound to the concept of individual freedom, we will soon recognize that we cannot discuss freedom without giving attention to the wider context within which individuals live, move, and have their being. Ethics is inevitably grounded in some form of metaphysics, for, is it, for it is exceedingly difficult to formulate principles for living without a moral scheme or a coherent affirmation of life. 
If life is meaningless, proceeding from nowhere and having no goal beyond its momentary expression, ethical maxims become useless. Similarly, the liberty of the individual is rendered useless and therefore lacking in true justification without some sort of metaphysic, without a meaningful image of the nature, potential, and meaning of the life of every individual human being. If we wish to affirm the proposition that freedom is necessary, good, or beneficial, we must first ask these basic questions. What is the meaning of the individual? Who and what is the human person? Where do human beings come from and where are they going? I think what Bishop Heller is laying out here is the central theme that we always talk about here on Modern Gnostic is the spiritual nature of the individual. What he's saying here is that freedom has to be, it's not some abstract thing, it's dealing with specific beings, you, me, your family, my family, our community, the neighbor next to me. We're all recognizing this same inherent equal spark of the divine in all of us. And that we really have to get an understanding of who and what we think individuals are. And this is something that uh, different spiritual systems deal with very, very differently. Um, I spent many, many years, as many of you know, um, studying Buddhism and practicing as a Buddhist. And I can tell you that the Buddhist concept of self is very different than the concept of self in the Western tradition. It's very different than the concept of self that we see arise from Judeo-Christian and Hermetic traditions and even um, classical Vedic traditions of self. So it's important to know, it's important, as we talked about in the beginning of this series, what we're trying to do here is find out where we stand and making these ideas um, solid and understandable and clear in our mind, having a clear metaphysic uh, and a map for which we can understand the world. And so I think what Bishop Heller's saying here is that first place is defining who and what is the human person? What is the meaning of the individual? Where do human beings come from and where are they going? Many people in today's world who have a vital interest in issues of liberty and individuality are asking these questions. The implosion of Soviet power in Central and Eastern Europe has made questions of this nature even more urgent and imperative. The people of Western democratic countries will soon face similar puzzled questions and even accusations from their formerly communist dominated fellows. Why, they may well ask, do we have no coherent and meaningful set of ideas with which to meet the challenges of other ideologies or to offer as a replacement for the collectivist and totalitarian ideologies recently discredited? Publicist Irving Kristol defined this predicament cleverly when he wrote that the freedom-loving movement of which he felt himself a part lacked a certain spinal column of thought. It seems that the enemies of freedom always have a metaphysic, an internally consistent systemization of values, experience, and meaning, while the advocates of freedom have no such support. Tyranny has convictions regarding the meaning of life, but liberty usually only has the existential impact of its own worth. Slave masters always seem to have an impressive philosophy to justify their power structures of slavery, 
Certainly, this was the case with Marxism and Leninism. Countering such ideological arguments, the free can only repeat how good it feels to be free. Not that freedom-oriented thought is always lacking in ideological underpinnings. First, there are those who are violently opposed to all ideologies, whose opposition itself tends to resemble an ideology all of its own. Then there are what might be called traditionalists, whose allegiances belong to the mainstream traditions of Judaism and Christianity, often in their orthodox and or evangelical expressions. These groups claim to be freedom loving. This, these groups claim to be freedom loving is open to challenge, however, for much of both Jewish and Christian history is characterized by a lack of regard for personal freedom. If the Jewish Christian God and his commandments are the true foundations for the rights of humanity, then why have the worshipers and clergy of this God frequently disregarded these rights over the centuries and even millennia? Aside from these and similar arguments, we must recognize that Western society today has a substantial minority which, although spiritually committed, is not part of the mainstream of religious orientation. In the ranks of these people are many whose theoretical and practical regard for freedom is very great. Men and women live in our midst today who are passionately dedicated to freedom, but at the same time fail to agree with the mainstream view that the Judeo-Christian God is a liberating force in modern society. This minority includes numerous individuals who have developed an intense interest in and attachment to the modern scientific discipline of depth psychology, often known in its variants of psychoanalysis or analytical psychology. The findings of depth psychology have assumed the status of a philosophy of life for many. Among the outstanding representatives of this discipline, the thought of C.G. Jung is currently receiving mounting sympathetic interest in our culture. Jung was a good example of the modern, creative, intellectual, and artistic person. He was profoundly religious, or we might say spiritual, in his orientation, but he was far removed from the mainstream of traditional religious dogma. Those who choose to investigate his contribution to culture find a synthesis of human knowledge seldom before achieved. Beginning as a physician intent upon curing the ills of the mind, Jung discovered the great truth of the reality of the human psyche, the phenomenology of which he explored. In the deepest strata of the human mind, Jung discovered certain previously obscured or unknown forces and images which are powerfully related to important aspects of culture, myth, religion, art, philosophy, and literature. Based on these and related discoveries, Jung developed a number of ideas of a sociological and political character. Since he lived in the era of the two world wars and of Nazi and communist totalitarianism, Jung naturally came to relate himself powerfully to some of the great social and historical questions of his time, and indeed of our times as well. Looming behind Jung and interwoven with his thought is a school of spirituality which, while often maligned and misunderstood in the past, is once again receiving a good deal of attention. This school is the ancient spiritual philosophy of Gnosticism. Jung was, as some are beginning to discover now, a modern Gnostic. Within the last 20 years, there has been an increasingly powerful and sympathetic interest in the teachings of Gnosticism. 
The discovery in 1945 and publication in, 1990, in 1977 of the largest archaeological discovery of Gnostic writings and the subsequent literature of commentaries has restored and in fact rehabilitated to a great extent the teaching of the Gnostics. Gnosticism is most frequently regarded as a Christian heresy of the first three centuries AD, and very few have regarded it as having social or political implications. One exception was the late Amer Austrian immigre scholar Eric Voiglin, who in the 1950s, in such books as The New Science of Political Order and History and others, engaged in much far-fetched speculation of what Gnosticism was in some obscure way the true ancestor of most of the political ideologies which the author considered iniquitous. Vogelin argued that all the modern totalitarian ideologies were in some way spiritually related to or descended from ancient Gnosticism. He reasoned that since Gnostics had little liking for the Old Testament God, even when represented as God the Father in Christianity, they would not wish to join him in heaven. Thus, they must wish to substitute for such a heaven an earthly utopia, a heaven on earth. At the same time, Vogelin admitted the Gnostics regarded the earthly realm as not particularly perfectible. Vogelin never really bothered to clear up this contradiction, and thus his argument was flawed from the beginning. Under the pressure of a more moderate and better informed scholarly climate, enthusiasm for Vogelin has waned considerably in recent decades. For example, scholar and Senator Samuel Hayakawa has subjected Vogelin's theories to severe criticism, identifying their author as a sort of academic crank. Disregarding Vogelin's theories, we may find, we may find much useful inspiration for contemporary interest in freedom in Gnostic thought, especially in the light of the teachings of Jung. And so that was a pretty long passage. And what uh, Heller is saying there is that since the discovery of Gnostic texts, and kind of the Gnostic revival that has been happening since the 1940s, there are certain people who see Gnosticism as being the root of some of the totalitarian ideologies that we're talking about now. In my years of studying Gnosticism, I don't really see a connection here. The, the connection usually goes something like this. Since the Gnostics um, saw themselves in opposition to some aspects of the Old Testament God, as Stefan Heller says here, they must not want to join him in heaven. Therefore, they want to create earthly utopias. And creating earthly utopias is the domain of totalitarianism, right? If you look at far-right fascism or far-left communism, both of them are attempting to build the perfect society. They're attempting to build utopia on earth. And this is typically a hallmark of totalitarian systems. You see it a lot in cults as well. Um, and I don't mean to use cult in a derogatory term. There are good cults, there are bad cults, uh, but, but cults that tend towards the negative or tend to end up having bad results generally attempt to create a utopia on earth. Um, I, in my experience, this, there were definitely Gnostic sects that would fall under this uh, rubric that's being explained here, but something to keep in mind uh, when you talk about Gnosticism or when you talk about early Christianity is there was not one Gnosticism. And in the beginnings of Christianity, there was not one Christianity. Orthodoxy is something that came later. It's a, it's a deviation from the original tradition. Um, and in the same way, there's not one Gnostic orthodoxy. And what we do as modern Gnostics is kind of 
study all of the different streams of Gnosticism, and we find the ones that resonate and work with us. And some people will criticize that as a lunch counter or cafeteria approach to religion. So be it. If that's what you want to call it, you can call it that. Um, I tend to think that uh, that this was the, the pre-existing state of religions before they solidified into orthodoxies. But uh, a common understanding that I have with Gnosticism is that we don't expect utopias in this world. We know that this world is flawed. And that's, that's a Christian understanding as well. I would also say that I don't think all Gnostics reject or see themselves as opposed to the Old Testament God. I know I don't. There's aspects of the Old Testament God that I find uh, hard to deal with, or hard to understand. And some of them are just mysterious. And quite frankly, I find passages in the Old Testament really hard to square with my understanding of divinity. But I think some of those things are just mysterious. And I think that's how uh, ancient Gnostics saw it as well. And some ancient Gnostics saw themselves in opposition to this. So it's important to keep in mind that there is not one Gnosticism, right? Just as there's not one Christianity, there's not one Buddhism, these things are textured and varied. Um, and particularly when it comes to Gnosticism, the goal is to discover what Gnosticism means to you. So uh, getting back, let's just read that last sentence. Disregarding Vogelin's theories, we may find much useful inspiration for contemporary interest in freedom in Gnostic thought, especially in the light of the teachings of Jung. This book argues that the psychological and spiritual approach to freedom represented by Jung and before him by the Gnostics is singularly well suited to be an ideological support for a contemporary dedication to human freedom. Jung's ideas also buttress the suspicions many of us nourish concerning big government, a controlled economy, the interference of government in the private lives of citizens, and the almost inevitable culmination of such conditions in totalitarian tyranny. It may be, may be that for some, the logical positivism and materialistic rationalism of Ayn Rand can serve as satisfactory ideological justification for a view of life devoted to freedom. It is also within the realm of possibility that for others, especially those who are not bothered by logical or historical inconsistencies, the old time religion of fundamentalism may serve as an adequate basis for a concern for liberty. Still, there are other alternatives. Between born again Christianity and rationalistic atheism, there is a middle ground where reason and spirit, or as Jung would say, ego and self can meet in freedom. And I think this is a, a key um, aspect of the Western tradition, uh, and we can see it happening after the Protestant Reformation and the introduction of Rosicrucian ideas into the tradition, this idea of finding a middle ground between, he says here, born-again Christianity, but we can think of Orthodox Christianity, and rationalistic atheism, a middle ground where reason and spirit, or as Jung would say, ego and self can meet in freedom. This is the this middle ground is the the goal. It is the it is the it is the stance of the Western esoteric tradition, the middle ground where reason and spirit can meet in freedom. From whatever perspective it may be viewed, from whatever watchtower of the mind or spirit it may be observed, freedom is extremely important. Freedom is precious, both as an objective of human efforts and as the means to the achievement of the greatest goals of human condition. 
Freedom is also a paradoxical reality, easily lost sight of in the storms of life. Not always is freedom easily discernible. When the German armies paraded into tiny Austria, when Russian tanks rolled into Budapest or Prague, when the workers of Warsaw and Gdansk were herded from their factories into concentration camps by their socialist masters, it was not difficult to, to discover what was meant by freedom. Something definite, something concrete was being taken from its rightful owners. When the heroic members of the Russian parliament defied the might of the troops sent against them by the old line communist plotters of August 1991, it was clear where freedom stood and where tyranny could be found. There are other times when freedom tends to elude us, when the lines are not so clearly drawn. Paradoxical yet precious is the issue of freedom. When someone greatly in loves feels that in the arms of the beloved, infinite freedom can be found, but the consummation of the relationship reveals that in lieu of freedom, a new set of tedious human problems have moved into the focus of consciousness, the idea of freedom becomes blurred. Similarly, when idealistic men and women deeply concerned about issues of human suffering and misery busy themselves in establishing a welfare state from which they hope the numerous afflictions of living might be banished, but discover instead that the absolute state they have created has destroyed their individuality absolutely, the reality of freedom begins to shimmer and vibrate like a mirage. Freedom, it seems, is the great and precious paradox of our age, or of any age. In this world, though we desire freedom, in our very efforts directed towards realizing our desire, we often become unfree. And yet, we must accept the fundamental reality of freedom. The vision of freedom is not an illusion or a mirage. Deeply within us, a voice cries out, declaring that in some mysterious way, we were indeed born free, and that it is incumbent upon us to realize our birthright. Now, as ever, the pursuit of human freedom is one of the most worthwhile if not the most worthwhile of all endeavors. May this book aid and amplify that pursuit. And so that ends the introduction of Freedom, Alchemy for a Voluntary Society. And I'd say it ends it on a strong foot. Let's read that last paragraph one more time. And yet we must accept the fundamental reality of freedom. The vision of freedom is not an illusion or a mirage. Deeply within us, a voice cries out, declaring that in some mysterious way, we were indeed born free, and that is incumbent upon us to realize our birthright. This is the thing. This is the, the, the voice in you, the voice of who and what you really are. It's the, it's the voice that recognizes when freedom is there and when freedom is slipping away. It is the voice that you amplify and identify with more and more through prayer and meditation. It's the inner compass that as modern Gnostics, we are trying to activate, we are trying to bring to the fore. Uh, this is our true self. It's what truly who and what we are, the sons and daughters of the Most High. Freedom is our birthright. 
The founders of this country knew this. They rebelled against tyranny because they knew it was a violation of who and what they truly were. And today, in the turbulent times that we are standing in, the sons and daughters of God who are awake to their true patrimony, to their heritage, to our divine DNA, we are awakening to the fact that tyranny is coming in, that tyranny is seeping in, that tyranny is here in many ways. And it is time for us to realize that this is not what we are meant for. We are not meant to live as unfree beings. And now as ever, the pursuit of human freedom is one of the most worthwhile, if not the most worthwhile of all endeavors. There's nothing better we can do with our lives. It's, it, there's, there's no, I always say there's no other game in town. There's no other game in town outside liberation and freedom. All right, so we've made it through the preface. We've made it through the introduction. In the next video, we'll get into chapter one. Um, some people are already commenting on the first video on Facebook, reaching out to me with questions, with ideas, with discussion. As always, I encourage you to do that. Um, wherever you're watching or listening to this, please like it, please share it, let people know about it. Um, and reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook. You can find the Modern Gnostic Podcast on Facebook. Uh, there's an email on the YouTube channel where you can write to me. You can leave comments. I'll reply to them. Um, it's important that we find the others, that we build our community. Um, one of the, you know, the kind of a, a cliche thing now is to talk about how negative social media is. And in a lot of ways, that's very true. But there's something it allows us to do now that we could never do before. You might live somewhere where there you don't know any like-minded people. You might be in an isolated location. You might not have any friends who are on the same page with you in regards to these things. And that can be a very lonely feeling, but social media and the internet can connect us all around the world, all over the country, all across the states into community. And I can tell you over the last few years of building the modern Gnostic community, um, I've met great friends, friends that I talk to on a daily basis that I've never met in person. I've only met online. So take advantage of these tools. Reach out. Reach out to me. Um, let's engage with these ideas. Let's build, let's build community based on these ideas of freedom and liberation and embracing our birthright. So I hope you guys enjoyed this, uh, and until next time, let's seek the mysteries. Thanks for listening to this episode of Modern Gnostic. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, wherever you're listening, be sure to subscribe, to like, and please share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it. And if you're not aware, we're also producing YouTube videos for these episodes. You can find the YouTube channel uh, at YouTube. Just search Modern Gnostic and you'll see the videos. Uh, please subscribe to us there, like and share those as well. And as always, uh, reach out. You can find me on social media, Brian Stanford at Facebook or Modern Gnostic also at Facebook. Or you can comment on the videos. I love to hear from people. I hope you keep listening. I hope you enjoy the show and be sure to share it with anybody else who might be interested in seeking the mysteries.